saints of Faith Bible Church. It was good to um, be with you a little bit there in the fellowship hall. Uh, thank you for having me, and good to meet a few of you again and for the first time. Um, so I guess by way of introduction for you, yes, my name's Aaron Dufresne. This is my wife, Allie, in the beautiful blue dress up front. Um, we have a daughter who's five years old. She's not with us. Her name's Talitha. Um, she's with her mother-in-law right now. We're in Simi Valley, so we hail and come to you from Simi Valley. And then we have a son whose name is Haddon, and he's kind of uh, guilty by association at this point. He has to be here because he is confined in the womb of my wife. (laughs) So he he has to sit under the preaching of God's word this morning, thankfully. Um, Last time I was here with you all... um, George was aware that I was on my way to the Master Seminary, which your uh, beloved pastor is a graduate of. Uh, I'm now enrolled and partaking of that. So the Lord has been good. Um, and uh, we're kind of just taking that a step at a time. And um, I'm just thankful, honestly, this morning to be here with you all to open the Word of God to you. So I really want to get to that. And we will. Um, I guess I'd like to say as well, um, thank you, Dave, for... Uh, the announcements and just the way you guys uh, point us to Christ um, from the moment we walk in. It's amazing. Um, even being amongst a small group of believers uh, that love the Lord Jesus Christ, and um, it's encouraging to my own heart, so I hope that we'll all be encouraged in the worship of God uh, continually as we go to his word. Um, and then Ruth and Linda as well. That was beautiful, so thank you for that. Um, So we're going to be in the book of Hebrews uh, this morning. And we're going to look at a specific passage. And it's going to be Hebrews 10. Uh, Hebrews is right after Philemon, little tiny book, and uh, right uh, after as well 1st and 2nd Timothy. Right before James, it's kind of towards the end of the Bible. And uh, like I said, we're going to be in Hebrews 10, 32 through 39. That's the passage we're going to look at. I I really wish we had enough time this morning to read the book of Hebrews together. Um, Really, like, thank you for the scripture reading, too, by the way. That was a blessing to hear the word of God and then to pray over the word of God. Um, So we could, you know... We could read the book of Hebrews and and then preach from it. And um, I would love to do that, uh, but we won't. (laughs) Uh, But nonetheless, I do want to I do want to look at I do want to read at least uh, Hebrews 10, Uh, even though we're going to be looking at, like I said, 32 through 39. I would like for us to get in our minds the context, of course, and read Hebrews, uh, all of Hebrews 10. I think that will be. A blessing for us and helpful in this. So before we do that, would you join me again in uh, asking the Lord's blessing? Father, I come before you in the name of your Son, and I thank you, God, for Faith Bible Church and for George and uh, the, uh, the one who you've uh, ordained and chosen to set forth your word and, and shepherd the flock here. Uh, both by preaching and by shepherding. We pray for him and his family and pray that you would uphold them continually by your grace day by day, Uh, not only in this time, in this special time, specific time, but in days to come. Bless this church, Lord, with a continual love for Christ and bless them by working in them what is pleasing in your sight, Father. And thank you that these are your beloved children, those that are among us here that have turned from sin and placed their faith and trust in Christ, which you have commanded from your word, and you have given them the gift of faith. They are precious. They're precious to you. And so I just pray in this hour that you would show forth your glory From your word, as we had just sung, speak, O Lord, and uh, renew our minds 
And help us to go from here, Lord, with a greater love for Christ, which would show itself in greater strides of obedience and faithfulness to you. We need this by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. So let's go ahead and read Hebrews 10, okay? Starting in verse 1, Hebrews 10. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin... You have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he... Having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies are put as a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy by the mouth of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Here's our verses. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and afflictions, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you also showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted with joy the seizure of your possessions, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. Therefore, do not throw away the confidence. Don't throw away that confidence of yours, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise 
For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. This is the word of the living and true God. Similar to uh, the clear, straightforward, powerful doctrinal arguments in Paul's letter to the Romans that we're all familiar with, we find here with dynamite precision in this letter to the Hebrews. His arguments, the writers, and as I studied it, I'm being more convinced that Paul wrote this letter, but we'll just keep that to the side. But nonetheless, the inspired writer to the Hebrews here has these arguments throughout the whole entire book that just leave you riveted. Um, in Hebrews, if understood correctly and in its full doctrinal scope in it, which it was originally intended for its recipients to understand it, and that's the way we must understand the Bible, as you're taught so well from George, I'm sure, well, I know, that expositional preaching, right? We need to understand the letter in its original context and, and how its readers were originally meant to understand it in which is the meaning that God intends for us to understand. So the point is, is this is not a dry doctrine, this book. It's not just teaching for the sake of mere cerebral exercise, just food for your brain, though it is food for your brain, it's not just that. This letter is absolutely, positively jam-packed with the whens and whys of the Christian faith. And as I'm sure you're well aware, this book was written with the intention to put on full display to the community of Jewish believers that Jesus indeed was and is greater, better, and the truest fulfillment of all the Old Testament order. For the Christian, this is what makes this book so amazing and so full of instruction and encouragement for the purpose of, as Hebrews 12.2 tells us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's sweeping. If read through with an understanding of the author's intent, which subsequently, as I said, is the divine author's intent, then one will walk away being both warned with divine impact, not to throw away the hope of our profession, which has a great reward, and also with the encouragement and spiritual tools to do so. Though we are not going to do a full exposition of the book, as I already said, which would be absolutely impossible, but amazing, nonetheless, for those of us who love the Word of God, we would try to stay awake for that. Um, nonetheless, it would be foolish, I think, to, um, to jump into any passage of Hebrews. After studying this, it would be foolish to jump into any passage of Hebrews without first having set in your mind at least a a foundational working outline of the book. Um, And that's right about any letter in the Bible or any book of the Bible, of course, but even more so Hebrews. um, And in understanding the author's intention, um, you know, this is where we're going to be drawn up into the third heaven leading us to Christ. So before a general outline of the book, it'll be good to take notice of a few historical realities surrounding the writing of this word of exhortation. And that's what Hebrews is. It's not really your, um, your average letter because all the other epistles in the New Testament um, start with these greetings and they are, they are traditionally letters, recognized as letters. Hebrews doesn't start like that. Um, it's right off the cuff. Um, and actually in Hebrews 13, right at the end of the book there, he tells us it's a word of exhortation. He says in verse uh, 22, but I urge you, brothers, bear with this word of exhortation. And I think this is really funny, for I have written to you briefly. Not a very brief book, Um, but nonetheless, uh, it's a word of exhortation. It's like a sermon. It's like a written sermon. Um, First of all, this book had to be written before um, destruction of the, the destruction of the temple. In A.D. 70, and I believe this for a few reasons. One, because of the author's use of the present tense when speaking of the temple services. If you remember, um, he goes on speaking of the temple services in the present tense. And because the author in chapter 10.2, 
when referring to the ineffectiveness of the Levitical sacrifices, and we just read that, says in reference to these sacrifices, in verse 2 of chapter 10, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. Well, so I believe the argument would have been different if he was writing to his Hebrew audience after the destruction of the temple. And though this is important, the letter itself still addresses, whether or not it was before or after the destruction of the temple, it still addresses the same issue of temptation and pressure of the believing Hebrew Jew to revert to the waxing old system of Judaism, whether or not the temple service was still intact. That's what the author is getting at. The reason is simple. The system, the Old Testament system, was the cream of the crop for the Jew, right? This was... As Paul says in, in Romans, I believe in Romans 2, uh, he references uh, Romans 3, um, he talks about the fact that Romans 3, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Great in every respect. 3 verse 1 and 2. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So the Old Testament um, sacrifices and things like that, they had their place. Of course, we know that. And their place was mighty because it was ordained of God in redemptive history for a certain purpose. But even Jesus himself addressed this issue that he knew the Jews would have trouble facing when he came. In the gospel accounts, that is when Jesus came, uh, in the gospel accounts we find Jesus teaching the reality that you cannot mix the new with the old. And vice versa. Luke 5, 36 through 39. Reads this, And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says... The old is good enough. You understand what he's getting at. Jesus was teaching the complete incompatibility of the new covenant with the old system of sacrifices and regulations because it was being fulfilled in the person and work that those things were shadows of. One writer said it this way. Quote, The shadows of former days passed away and scattered at the rising of Jesus, the Son of Righteousness. End quote. Nonetheless, these sacred institutions were what the Jews held on to, and it is for this reason the writer takes up his pen to write this word of exhortation, a sort of sermon to these Hebrew believers and almost believers who must be warned not to turn back, to press forward in faith in the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, the Messiah. It will be well worth noting that our author only sets forth his powerful and poignant warnings after first teaching this altogether central truth that Jesus is better. And the general outline of the book follows that rule. Whether it was angels whom the law was delivered by, Jesus is better than the angels. And with that reality, our author warns his readers in 2 verse 1 that for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. You'll find that section in chapter 1 verse 4 to chapter 2, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 4, all the way to chapter 2, verse 18. Or whether it was Moses, who was God's chief prophet at that time, who received that law and gave it to the people, Jesus is yet still greater than Moses, right? And alongside that argument, our author then warns, quote, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, a rest that Joshua could not give, a rest that Moses could not give, while the promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any one of you may seem to have fallen short of it. He keeps exhorting his readers to look to this Christ, this Messiah, the final prophet of God. Chapter 3 to chapter 4, verse 13. That's that section. 
chapter 3, all the way to chapter 4, verse 13. Or whether it was mention of a greater priest than Aaron, the writer then warns of slothfulness and learning when one ought to be teaching or standing still, uh, and of fearful perdition, falling away, after the writer teaches of the Holy of Holies being opened by this once-for-all, eternally sufficient sacrifice, he immediately warns again of those who would grow, or I'm sorry, would now go on sinning willfully and neglect this sacrifice. That's found in chapter 4, verse 14, all the way up to chapter 10, verse 18. And the fifth major warning, the fifth and final major warning in this epistle comes to us in chapter 12 with the final instructions and encouragements to bear up under trials under God's discipline, which is, the warning goes as follows, do not come short of the grace of God. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. The writer is exhorting. He's patiently and lovingly addressing those who would Neglect the sacrifice, the once final sacrifice. And it's powerful. And it's God's word. As we approach our text, the argument that the writer had just finished making, as we get to our text and what we read, all of chapter 10, was that the, this new covenant, inaugurated by the blood of the eternal covenant, that is the blood of Christ, is a better covenant than the requirements of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. That's from 9-1. This is a better covenant than the requirements of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. And that, quote, Christ did not enter holy places made with hands, mere copies of the true ones, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, where he stands this day, I should say sits this day at the right hand of God to intercede for those who would put their trust in him. In 1019, the writer sums all this up by saying, quote, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and then to verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. This entire letter or exhortation is addressing a simple fact of belief. Believe, believe, believe. That's what this author is getting at. That as he says in that famous verse that we well, know so well in 11.6, chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. This is exactly what our writer has been exhorting these believers and almost believers to do. Those who might have been on the fringe, who associate with those who are in the church that is baptized into Christ, not just water baptism, Paul speaks of a baptism of which we are so associated with Christ that we're placed into him by faith. And there were those amongst these Hebrew Christians who may have been those who associated with true believers, but were not truly in Christ. And this letter was written both For the believer to urge him or her on towards greater strides of faithfulness to Christ and also to those Hebrew almost believers who were not in Christ, but, as I said, associated with the true church. And he warns them. And it's either do or die. It is persevere in faith or fall away in faithlessness and unbelief of the once for all atonement. And you you cannot help but read this letter in its entirety and feel the intense godly love pouring forth from the inspired writer's heart as he argues and pleads and warns. The main reason for this earnest pleading and exhorting can be attributed to the fierce persecution that Christians were exposed to, especially in the early church when this word of exhortation was written to its original audience. He does not want them to give up the reward of heaven for the earthly trials of persecution, which was tempting some of these Hebrews back to a less persecuted state of Judaism, which, again, had at this time, in Jesus announcing and inaugurating the new covenant, the old was ready to vanish away, borrowing the words from Hebrews. 
So don't throw away your hope, which has great reward. That's what he's saying. Listen to the writer as he pleads and exhorts. And with all of that in mind, I want us now to look briefly, hopefully, somewhat, at chapter 10, 32 through 39. So, saints, those of you who love Christ, um, let me ask you a question. Do you remember? Do you remember and recall the works of God and your conversion and what immediately followed? The Spirit bore witness with your heart that you were a child of God in such a profound and powerful way because for the first time, the Scripture made complete sense to you and God lit it up like a blazing fire in the blackest night. You saw Christ and you saw His absolute worth, just like this epistle we're looking at is arguing. His worth above all that this world has to offer. And you, like me, once delighted in all this world had to offer. It didn't matter the substance of that offer. It didn't matter what it was. It could have been wealth. It could have been high esteem in the thoughts of people. It could have been drugs. It could have been any single worldly endeavor. Whatever it was, it matters not. You could care less because now you saw the worth of Christ and having your sins atoned for in his person and work. Well, the author begins this section after a stern warning, as we read, to not despise the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. He bids the Hebrews to remember. Look at verse 32. But remember. Okay, remember. Sure. But remember what? Remember the former days. Remember the former days. Okay, but, but what former days? Yesterday? Last week? Two years ago when I successfully completed my Pokemon collection? Remember the former days when after being enlightened. Some of you don't know what Pokemon is. I'm sorry about that. Remember the former days when after being enlightened. That's what the writer says. The writer is intentionally calling for these Hebrews to recall the time of their conversion. They're being called out of darkness into his marvelous light. His purpose this entire time, as we have seen, is to press into their minds the superiority of Christ that they may persevere and not fall back into an old system that was growing old and ready to disappear, right? So now he comes to call them to recount and recall and remember the worth of their profession and the time of their conversion and what followed it. He began the section with this strong adversative. Look at your Bibles, verse 32 again. But this is a strong adversative in contrast with everything he was just warning about in verses 19 through 31, even bringing to their attention the failure of some to fall away from the community and stop gathering together. That's in verse 25. He then gets here in verse 32 and he says, but remember the Greek here for remember is also strong. It's not a, a mere, oh yeah, those were the good times. No, he is calling them to a calculated and thorough examination of the work of God in times when they first came to a saving knowledge of Christ. You can, you can understand, saints, how helpful this can be to your own soul and to perseverance. And even before we move on to the accompanying events that came along with their conversion, it's worthwhile for us to pause and ponder and take into account for ourselves the rich benefit of taking the writer at his word and God at his. And the benefit we can have from remembering the former days after you were enlightened. Because we, like the Hebrews, are called to persevere in faith and belief. And that's why we gather, right? That's why we come together to worship the Lord and to encourage each other, as he says in verse 25, even to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Verse 24 and 25. But it is true we are not to live the entirety of our Christian walk on past experience. This is true. We need to move forward. But this is far from what the writer is exhorting his readers to do. He is calling for them to not forget that this work has been a reality. And in contrast with the persecutions, or even possibly at this time a lack thereof, that they're trusting the reality of Christ 
He's calling them to realize that their trusting in the reality of Christ far surpasses everything else. And as we move on in this section, we see the obvious reality that the writer is not only calling for them to remember a specific time in their experience of grace, but also the outcome of that grace. The outcome of that grace. Look at the end of verse 32 into verses 33 and 34. You endured a great conflict of sufferings, verse 32 into 33, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and afflictions, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you also showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted with joy the seizure of your possessions, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. A great conflict of sufferings. The Greek word used here for conflict is athlesis. And you'll notice right away that this is where we get our word for athletics. Athletics being strenuous, taking zeal and effort, something I never partake of. Um, But the Hebrews had exhibited this suffering immediately following their conversion. That's the writer's point here. And does not God in his infinite wisdom often do this? Who do you not know upon conversion uh, that had severe trials immediately following? And God is good in his wisdom and how he meets out under his discretion the amount of temptation and suffering his children undergo. But it is often the case that immediately following conversion, the devil rages and the Christian finds his or her need to cling to Christ and to grow in grace immediately. The writer is calling his readers to remember this conflict of sufferings and that they endured them. I got a John Calvin quote for you here, folks. He said, anybody know who John Calvin is? That's my man back there. Um, Only one person raised their hand, just so you know. He says this, It is a shameful thing when you have started well to grow tired halfway, and even more shameful to go back when you have made considerable progress. Anyone who puts their hands to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Who said that? Jesus. Uh, Calvin goes on, For this purpose it is useful to remember past warfare if we have waged it faithfully and energetically under Christ, not by way of looking for a pretext for laziness as though we were now finished, but by way of making us more ready to finish the course which lies before us. So there is both warning there in Calvin's words and encouragement in Calvin's words. We need both, and that's exactly what the writer of the Hebrews is doing for his readers and subsequently us, is that we are to be exhorted here, uh, both in the warning of slothfulness and encouragement to endure. And by divine grace, these Hebrews endured these trials he's calling them to remember. Similarly, Thomas Brooks, anybody know who Thomas Brooks is? Good, go and read him. He's a Puritan, and he was excellent in his writings. Not everything was perfect, but none of us are. Thomas Brooks has a powerful word to not forgetting the work of God in our lives. Listen, he says, quote, The same command, the ninth, and the ninth commandment being thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. This is what Thomas Brooks says. He says, The same command, the ninth, doth enjoin thee not to bear false witness against the work of grace upon thine own heart, against the precious and glorious things that God has done for thy soul. How convicting is that? To remember what God has done for your soul. And not to bear false witness against it. Not to disdain it or not think about it. And not thinking about it or not recalling it to mind ever is to disdain. And as Thomas Brooks says, borrowing the ninth commandment, to bear false witness against what God has done for you. He then continues to evidence some examples of the suffering they endure by reminding them himself of these sufferings. They were both publicly reproached. Partly, he says in verse 33, partly by being made a public spectacle. And they were so publicly reproached would most likely be verbal. And then they were also afflicted, and this would be types of physical persecution. 
both of which the writer tells us they endured in a public manner. I, I love how the King James brings out this word for publicly. Anybody still read the King James? All right, my man in the back again. This is a this is a cooperative time, I guess. King James says a gazing stock. A gazing stock. The word here portrays the fact that, uh, in the original Greek, that is, the, the word portrays the fact that this was no hidden persecution, but an open maintaining of rejection of these Hebrew Christians. Our persecution has been minimal here in the States, but if there is one word that has always stuck out to me from the King James, it is gazing stock. I mean, does that not bring an image to your mind of just harassment, of open uh, rejection verbally? And uh, I've always known um, people who, finding out that you're a Christian, will speak ill of you to other people and try and ruin any reputation you may have and make you a gazing stock to others. And I'm sure we've all known those people and love those people and pray for those people as they do so. So part of these Hebrews' uh, persecution consisted in their faithful association with other believers who were treated in a similar way. That, in and of itself, is instructive for us. They became sharers with those who were so treated. Faithfulness requires that we partake of the pain and sufferings that our brothers and sisters in Christ undergo when reproached for the name of Christ. Whatever they suffer, we suffer with them. For we are all united to Christ, our head. And it's a joy, is it not, when one of your brothers or sisters are reproached for the name of Christ and you stand with them joyfully, saying, well, I am a fool for Christ as well. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Borrowing the words from 1 Corinthians and so they showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted with joy the seizure of their possessions. Now here is why the author is telling these Hebrew Christians to remember the work of grace when they were first enlightened with the truth. He says they did this all with joy. And true Christian joy produces a low esteem for things that are passing away and a higher esteem of that which is lasting. And that is the exact way he then describes how they were able to undergo these trials with joy. Right here, he says, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. That is it, folks. That is what brings us joy. The world is passing away, but he who does the will of God abides forever, borrowing the words from First John, right? These Hebrew Christians were completely convinced of the heavenly reality they had come to believe that their inheritance was in heaven, not on earth. And he repeats this same idea in chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. Let me read it in your hearing. All these died in faith. This was after, you know, you're familiar with Hebrews 11, and we call it the hall of faith, right? And it has all the list of those who had um, that uh, he deems as, in verse 2, uh, men of old who gained approval. And that's the list of the men of old who gained approval by their faith. And he says this in 13 through 16, All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country, country from which they went out, they would have had opportunities to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It's good for us to think and meditate often upon the end and climax of our faith, which is heaven, a better and lasting possession. Not only is our inheritance better, as Paul said in Romans 8.18, quote, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. End quote. But also notice the duration of this better possession. He calls it lasting. All that is before us will pass away. It is not lasting. We know this. 
It is not meant to last, since in God's plan for his own glory, he determined that man would fall from obedience in the garden and God would get glory for himself by showing how gracious and just he is through his plan of salvation through his son. And so we know this world will not last. As Peter says in 2 Peter 3, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. God promised in his grace that he would never flood the earth again even though man's heart was set continually to do evil. But he has promised that he will burn all the elements with fire and that all of this will pass away. And only if we turn to Christ can we be saved. And we're looking for a city which has foundations. And to borrow Hebrews 11.10, whose architect and builder is God. Now, we come to our author's next two statements, which sum up all that he has just said in verses 32 through 34 and reminding his readers of their conversion and the things they suffered joyfully in the time of their conversion. He says, therefore, therefore, because of all those realities, because you're able to look back on all the Lord has done for you through you and for his people, therefore, do not throw away that confidence of yours, which has a great reward. Faith Bible Church, do not throw away your confidence. That has a great reward. I could go on about the reward, and need I say more, the writer says, don't throw away your confidence. We are often exhorted in the Scripture to keep our love for God lively, to exercise the graces that God has worked in us, and to return to our first love. The end of Bible preaching of teaching, of fellowship, of prayer, is that we might see Christ as Linda's more sanctified, as Dave's more sanctified, as Joe's more sanctified, as we are more sanctified and, and we begin to look more like Christ, we, when we're together praying, we see Christ. We see Christ in one another and we're sanctified. It, it, it renews the mind. It renews the heart. Uh, the same with the preaching of the word. It's, it's all to see his glory. And it's the only thing that spurs one on to more faithfulness, is it not? It's not grit your teeth and bear it. It's not white knuckling the Christian. That's, that's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is when the heart is drawn out after his own glory and excellence that one is flowing in holy obedience and love. And I can't help but think of the old mills in Massachusetts where I'm from where they had a big old wheel on the side of the mills um, that used to power their mills and that wheel had buckets in it and it went the, all these mills were built on the side of the river and the wheel had buckets on it in which the river when flowing and especially flowing quickly they would get power to their mills because that wheel would start turning and in the same way when we are flowing with holy love to Christ, we move along in the Christian life because of the strength of that love to Christ. Um, so, and for this reason, the writer says in verse 36, for you have need of endurance. Endurance. Don't fall back into sloth because you have need to carry on in holy obedience so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. The promise is there. It is to be believed. And in believing, one acts. And in acting, one exercises his or her faith. And in exercising faith, one will, as Paul said, fight the good fight of faith, finish the course, keep 
the faith. And thus, we'll be able to say with confidence, like Paul, in the same breath when he said, In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 2 Timothy 4.8 So the writer says, You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Now, I did title this Faith, the Preservative of the Soul, and I did so prior to even, this is, this is going to make some expositors fall over backwards, but I titled the sermon before I started the sermon, <laughs> The Exposition of the Word of God, because I was thinking, as George asked me, to, you know, if I would come here and minister to you all, and gladly... Um, I, I, one thing that was on my heart was faith. And um, in contrast with the many definitions of faith that, that you'll hear everywhere in, in the world, we have one definition of faith, and that definition of faith is defined by God. Uh, it's not defined by anyone else. And obviously, Hebrews 11.1 1 was the main foundational text that I was thinking of when... Um, considering the power and liveliness of faith, of believing God, taking him at his word, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And again, as we mentioned earlier, that the men of old, through it, that is faith, the men of old gained approval. And that list is, is the amazing list of saints that were unworthy like we are, but that by faith, they endured all of the persecutions that the world threw at them and without, as verse 13 says, and we read this earlier, they died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. So I was going to talk about faith in general um, and borrow the language of the writer in verse 39 of our context here in verse 39 he says but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul but in doing so i settled on the exposition and as you can see as we did that it's encouraging to see exactly what the writer to the hebrews was exhorting his readers to which is has direct application because the Word of God, as Hebrews tells us, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And it has done so by calling us to remember the former days of our conversion, thinking of any sufferings we have endured during that enlightenment, And also to continue to sympathize with those who suffer for the sake of Christ. All of that, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. And so, Faith Bible Church, therefore, do not throw away that confidence of yours, which has a great reward. Be encouraged. Verse 37, which is a basically a transliterated reference to Habakkuk 2, 3 through 4. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We also find that in Romans 1:17 and Galatians 3:11, that the righteous shall live by faith. So, to sum up, none of us are righteous, right? That's why we're here. We are declared righteous if you're in Christ, but none of us have a righteousness of our own. Our righteousness is a borrowed righteousness. That righteousness is given to us by faith, and that's how we are to endure, to read the Word of God. And as our brother prayed in his Prayer, that's what was so encouraging to my heart, that God would increase our faith as we read his word, 
that faith is the very power of God that keeps us going in the Christian life. And, um, and so that's what we saw in our text. And he encourages us right at the end there that we are not of those, he says to his, his recipients, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. He did this, by the way, in chapter 6 as well. His warning in chapter 6, stern warnings of not falling away and not being able to even receive repentance and renew them again to repentance because these apostates crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. But then he says in verse 9 of chapter 6, but we are convinced about you, beloved, of things that are better and that belong to salvation though we are speaking in this way. So though I come to you and speak in this way, I'm sure of you who have trusted in Christ and his grace is at work in your life that we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So that is faith, the preservative of the soul. I hope that was helpful for you this morning and that we can go from here thinking on that praying on that. And so uh, with that, let's, let's pray together. Our God and our Father, again, we thank you for your word. And we come into your presence, Lord, knowing again that, that we have no righteousness of our own, but that that you sent your son into the world to live the perfect life that we could not live and to die the death that we deserve for our sins. It is the just for the unjust. And so because of his atonement and his work, we are accepted of you and drawn into the family of God. What a a blessing, Lord. Our, Our blessings far surpass our experience, and that's because of our slothfulness. No doing of your own, Lord, but only our slowness and our sin. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us all, Lord. Those who belong to you, I pray that you would help us to greater strides of holy love and acts of faith, which stem only, Lord, from a heart that's been transformed by your grace. Work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. And if there is any under the sound of my voice, Lord, that are under conviction for their sin, there is one remedy, as we have stated. The remedy is not church in and of itself. The remedy is not religion, acts of doing certain religious acts to please you. Nothing, Lord, but the blood of Christ can make us right with you. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here that has not trusted in your son, show them Christ, show them the worth of Christ, that this world is passing, but that Christ is all that we have for salvation. There is only one name given among men whereby we must be saved, 